0: sponsored by award-winning book spirit of the woods the story of a young woman's encounter with bigfoot by james allen ross what's going on boo thanks it's your girl rebecca and lily and you're listening to just Ooh, I fucked it up I knew I was supposed to wait and I got carried away <laughs> well we're excited because it's been almost a year since we've recorded our last episode but what is going on guys once again it's your girls Rebecca and Lily and welcome back to just ghoulie things like what it, it's finally happening it's happening oh god it's happening is it really a Just Cooling Things episode, though, without Lily screwing up the intro? So at this point, it's not really a screw-up. It's just a part of the whole shtick. Nailed it. You're yes. welcome, America. <laughs> so I came, I fucked up, I conquered. Guys, a lot has happened in the past year just with Lily moving our careers and coming up And literally a month to the day, Lily is going to be by my side, as I say I do, And I don't think it's hit me yet that I am going to be married in 30 days. Oh, my God. It's hit me. (laughs) I was crying at the gate this morning. Well, speaking of being an adult, so since Mm -hmm. the last time we recorded, a lot has happened specifically Mm -hmm. for Lily. And I kind of feel like the boo things may want to get a little update on you and how Florida and you have a daughter now. Can you explain I explain this a little further?
1: Yes, my baby squirrel—that's what I call her. So I call everyone squirrely girly now, because she's my baby squirrel. Her name is Masha, M A, like 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 Sasha with an M.
0: Mm.
1: Um, she is my pride and joy. Loki and Scar have a girl cousin now.
0: Yes, guys. Lily, can you kind of quickly explain, like? how Masha came into your life because I love this story and the bond that you guys share it's you guys need to go viral <laughs> we do we do
1: <laughs> we do um so okay I went through like a whole situation ship ending and then it like started and ended and I was just like You know, I was in bed, I was depressed, and I wanted a dog, and, you know, Miss Faith, my family's dog back in New Jersey, had passed away, and I was like, you know what, like, life is lonely, and I was going through a hard time at my job, just like, you know, one of those humps you have to get over, like, not necessarily I was hating it, but it was just, like, it was tough, and I was homesick and I was, you know, it was just so much stuff was happening, a lot of changes. And I just found myself on Pet Finder and talking to my mom almost nightly about, I want a dog. I think I need a dog in my life. I miss having a dog because since I was five years old, we had a dog in the house. And I scrolled and I found a couple. I found one. Her name was Honey Bun. She was really sweet. And I called to inquire about her and the lady was kind of nasty and hung up on me. And I was like, okay. So I, um, kept looking and I saw Masha and immediately she, I was like, that's her. Like, I wasn't going to call to inquire about this one. I was going to call to adopt this one. This was not, I saw her, I read her bio and it, and her bio was exactly what I was looking for. It was like, you know, she likes to take multiple short walks instead of one long walk a day. Um, she likes to sleep a little bit of play, big snuggler, which is perfect because, like, I'm in Florida alone. If I have a bad day, especially with like my like you know mental blah that I have going on, like to have an animal and to come home from work to a happy and loving face and to be able to feel that love of an animal, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Rebecca, you get you've had pets your whole your whole life, haven't you? Did you get Pepper when you were young?
0: Oh yeah, I mean, all my life I had. Any sort of, whether it was a fish, a hamster, a cat. There was always a furry friend in the house.
1: Right. And you can you can truly feel it. And so I was coming home, you know, after having the holidays alone. And then a family vacation, they all left. And then I was just thinking, like, what the hell am I doing? Right? And I, I went. Obviously, I was going to rescue. There was no question about it. And I found, you know, I saw the one dog. And I liked her. I liked the idea of it. And the lady was kind of nasty. And I was not... I wasn't that upset about it, but then when I saw Masha's profile, I was like, okay, there's no way I'm not getting her. There's no way she's not mine. Mm -hmm. I read her bio. She was perfect. And then I realized, this is where the action starts. I realized that my lease does not allow pit bulls or dogs over like 30 pounds. Masha's a 50 pound pit bull. Mm -hmm. My lease was about to be up and they had sent me my renewal letter. I marched my little butt down to the office and I told, well, I lied. I lied. And I told uh, one of the leasing agents, lovely young woman. I love her. She's been there since I moved in. I I showed her Masha's picture and I said, I went to an adoption event with my friend. I never went. Um, It was 4 a.m. and I was on Pet Finder, but close enough. And I fell in love with this dog. And I said, I've seen pit bulls around. And she said, well, you know, they're listed as emotional support animals. Can you do that? Right? And, you know, that's like a touchy subject. And I I, I don't want to forge any paperwork or anything. Like, she's my dog. I love her. She loves me. Like, that's enough for me. Um, but I'm desperate. I look at the adoption application. It wants an attachment of my lease that clearly says no pit bulls, no dogs over 30 pounds. And it also says that the shelter, it goes against policy to a, adopt a dog and immediately declare it an emotional support pet. Because, like, you, it's, they're like, we, you know, you have to have a bond with it. It has to go through training. You're not just going to scoop up a Chihuahua and say emotional support. Like, there, this is an actual thing. Or a service dog, right? Like, there are things you have to do. And I was like, fuck, man, this, you know, this, this shelter is so legit. God damn it. So... <laughs> Um, I went back to the office and I said to her, I was like, Listen, they want to see the lease, and I can't adopt as emotional support. In order to have an exemption on the lease, she has to be emotional support. What are we gonna do? And basically, I got her in contact with the shelter, and they talked and about her mannerisms and her temperament, and like she's fully house trained. She quiet. I've heard her bark once, like, I mean. And they both okayed it. She had been in foster for a year and a half and only one other person had ever put in an inquiry for her. One woman once, like six months before I had, you know, she was in foster for about a year and she got her first application and it didn't work out. And then I came along and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but my lease hasn't renewed yet. And I want, you know, I haven't re-signed my lease. I want this dog and I don't want to move. What are we going to (laughs) do? And I came, you know, when they said I was approved for adoption, I signed the lease letter and I went down and I renewed it. And she came to live with me. Like I went to visit her five days after I got approved. No, she came to visit me five days after I got approved and she just stayed.
0: Yeah, that's what I I did.
1: I, I, when I tell you, and it's so crazy, but when I saw her pet finder profile, literally, I just like, I I feel like I'm going to cry. I could, I looked, I saw her eyes just kind of like looking and she had like the silly little flower crown and a thing that said adopt me. But I I just, I looked at her and I was like, that, that's her. Like she has, she's not the perfect dog to a lot of people. She's about six and a half, right? So she's not a puppy and she's got some big scars on her face and her teeth are all whittled down and she's got some, you know, GI problems. <laughs> but I was like, but I'm looking at it. I'm like, girl, those are all me too. Like I have veneers. I have veneers and an upset tummy all the time. Like you and me girl. And I, I called the foster. I asked about the routine and I was like, you know, if it's a, if her, you know, eating and then being taken out schedule, like our specific hours that I can't do because I work from, I get to work at two o'clock and I leave work at 1130 at night. Like I don't, if I can't do that, then I'm I'm not interested because I don't want to fuck around more, but dear God, I'm in love with this dog. Yeah. The moment I met her, Rebecca, I don't know. Well, okay. On Rebecca's bachelorette. Also, I showed everyone her picture because I waited. I I wanted to apply for her and then I had to go home and then I came back. And then shortly after I got back was going to be your bachelorette trip. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to have this dog rehomed after being rescued and then in foster for a year and a half. Have her come live with me and then leave for a long weekend. So I waited and I was like, the closer to the end of the lease, honestly, the better. Yeah. Yeah. I was one of the first tenants. My rent's always on time. And I remember showing when we got to the Airbnb for Rebecca's Bachelorette,
0: showing you and like Nicole and being like, look at the dog I'm going to get. I, I absolutely love Masha and I have it even better. But like you guys have to just check, check Lily out and Masha's Instagram out. And you just see just the love that Masha has. And like, it's, it's crazy. And anyone that says that dogs don't have emotions or souls, like absolutely are wrong. Like, Masha literally is a human being and a dog.
1: She's got the smile and everything. Rebecca, you guys, Rebecca goes, Masha, you have your mom's smile. But she does. It's
0: so crazy to say that.
1: Well, I think also when you guys look up Masha's page, which we'll like link, I guess, or we'll do something on the Instagram page. Masha looks so much like Loki. Yes. And it's so funny because you know how they say like dogs are like their owners i look more like my two barely related blood cousins than i look like my own brother <laughs> and then like here comes masha i don't know we're looking so much like loki <laughs> it's like yeah this is cinematic
0: parallels so we kind of alluded to what this episode is going to be about by talking about the wedding that's coming up in a month and when lily and i were brainstorming about what we are going to do of course lily was always the one that comes up with the great topic ideas so lily can you tell the boo things what we are going to be talking about today haunted wedding venue. I was telling my parents about this today because they were so excited. We're getting back to recording and Mike is super excited for us. And I told them the topic and they all were like, that is amazing. Like, why haven't you guys thought of that before? I don't, I don't know why. But I feel yeah. like there's so many, like I, when I was researching, there were so many mm-hmm. different ones that we can revisit this episode so many different times moving forward.
1: Exactly. I, I found a list, like, did you see, it was like bride.com or something? It was like 46 different places. Yes, that's the one and I, I
0: from.
1: What I thought was interesting is like, there were places we never even thought of, like the Stanley Hotel is on there, the Queen Mary. And it's like, we've kind of discussed those in other episodes. I never, it never even occurred to me Like to get married there, so yeah.
0: And it's so funny. I was thinking about it because I remember when Mike and I first started dating, and it was probably a couple years in, and we started talking about one day getting married. And we had always thought it would be so cool to get married on Halloween and like having like a spooky spooky kind of yeah. And once we got engaged, and it was around kind of COVID time, and we were trying to figure out venues for twenty twenty three everything was so sold out that like October where we wanted to get married was so out of the picture that like the date we got, we were happy that we even got a date. And, uh, and then like when I was revisiting these, I was like, Oh, I wish we could have, I wish we could have maybe figured out if it was like a haunted location and where we're getting married is on a farm. There's a family farm. So maybe there is scary stories. I have to ask the coordinator if there is some things I've never asked her. And then Mm -hmm. next time we record, I'll, I'll give you guys a follow up because I feel like that'd be very interesting to talk about.
1: I mean, listen, I will kill a bitch at your wedding if she shows up in some bullshit bright red dress or something trying to steal the show. I'll tell you that much.
0: So the one I chose to start with is it's called the 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. This mm-hmm. is one of the first ones that was on that website. I immediately read like the little blurb about it and was like, I have to learn more about this place. And I'm so glad I picked this one because it is juicy. Okay, so you Ready? <laughs> are born foreign ready foreign right, well, ready man, let's do it so if you couldn't guess uh, the Crescent Hotel was originally built in 1886 and it has witnessed the passage of time so what's really cool about this location is that they do a really tasteful job of embodying the essence of the different hours that it's been through while also Ooh. embracing like the modern times that we're currently in so okay. this retreat is a luxury retreat for all different types of travelers, but definitely more high-end, more affluent. And the Crescent Hotel has played a huge role in the community of Eureka Springs. And Mm -hmm. it's pretty much an icon. And it symbolizes elegance and hospitality and just all over just like what you think of when you think of rest and relaxation. So the history of the Crescent Hotel though, it extends beyond It's opulence and it's witnessed so many different crazy periods of transformation. And if I went through every single acquisition it went through and all that, that would just take up like three hours of time. So I'm going to give you kind of like the Cliff Notes version while still giving you enough information to know about the Crescent Hotel and why people believe it's haunted. So I'm going to take it back to the year 1879, and that's the year that the town of Eureka Springs emerged. And just to give you an idea of what Eureka Springs looks like, as if the building itself of the Crescent Hotel isn't gorgeous, the atmosphere in which it's around is absolutely breathtaking, and it's nestled among the landscape of the Ozark Mountains, but of course... The Native Americans originally discovered this haven of the natural mm-hmm. springs. And there's a lot of healing properties that were associated with it and with the lush forests and rugged cliffs. It's just how could you not be like spiritually healed coming to a place like this? Right. But of course, yeah. this news of this mystical place spread around and it drew a lot of attention from people far and wide. And It was a place for people to go in search of solace and rejuvenation, you know, craziness in the city life, trying to find some reconnection to Mother Earth. So people found this place, Eureka Springs, and it quickly blossomed into this vibrant community. So by 1880, 2,000 homes had appeared and over 15,000 people were residing in Eureka Springs. So very quickly, as soon as it was discovered, just took it right on over. Mm-hmm. So now the governor at the time, Powell Clayton, was a, a visionary leader and he had a very keen eye for progress, he was very progressive and recognized that there was a lot of potential for Eureka Springs and he was determined to unlock its full potential, aka make a shit ton of money off the land. So, so good for him, Joanne the scammer. Right? Like literally, <laughs> OJ. So Clayton collabs with the Eureka Springs Improvement Company, and together they ended up orchestrating the arrival of the Frisco Railroad to Eureka Springs, which at this time when the railroad was just becoming like really like hot and popular, like it was a groundbreaking development that ended up revolutionizing transportation and just opening up new avenues for growth in this area. So now the Eureka Springs Improvement Company, right? They understood that the town's reputation was known as like a healing retreat, right? So they also knew that putting a grand resort hotel was a necessity to cater to the wide influx of visitors and also those that had the money to, you know, keep <laughs> money out. so that's when the iconic Crescent Hotel was born. So following its grand opening in 1886, the Crescent Hotel established quickly uh, being a premier destination for the elite and the well-to-do. Again, it was a place that people that lived in the hustle-bustle of the city just needed a quick escape. They got on a train, boom, you're right there. And with the lavish accommodations, the breathtaking views, the top-notch amenities, it just drew guests in that, were escape, escape, that wanted that escape. And with mm-hmm. this amazing customer service, it was just... The the dining experience there was exquisite. It was just all around, like, 10 out of 10. Highly recommend, like, if TikTok was around, you'd be seeing it on your For You page left and right. So, um, of course, with that heavy hype, what comes up must come down, or at least plateau. So then in 1902, the hotel was leased to the Frisco Railroad for five years. Mm -hmm. And, Lily, you know in the service industry... There's always high points and there's also slow points. And especially like in, in hotel hospitality, oh, yeah. um, business was really slow in the winter there. So sure. they needed to do something with that property. So Crescent College ended up opening up at that location. And what's really cool about Crescent College is it provided education of females, which was very revolutionary for its time as well. Okay. And the college flourished, and it offered a comprehensive curriculum, and it just fostered a vibrant academic community.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And like I said, it provided young women with exceptional educational opportunities. It empowered them to pursue knowledge and personal growth. And over the years, the college regained a reputation for its commitment to excellence, and it attracted students from all across the country. And although the Crescent College for Women eventually closed its doors in 1934— Its legacy still remains embedded in the hotel's rich tapestry. And it's really cool because like I said before, the the hotel currently, even though it's become more modern and obviously it's not the college that it was, it still commemorates the era of female education and empowerment and I think that's pretty badass. And then in 1937, an infamous man named Norman Baker, who at the time was a very charismatic, But yet you'll find out a very fraudulent businessman amassed a lot of wealth from cancer sufferers and from acquiring wealth from these cancer sufferers, got enough money to buy a Crescent Hotel and he embarked on a very ambitious venture. So let me tell you a little bit about this Norman Baker guy. He transformed the hotel into what he called the Baker Cancer Clinic. And he pretty much presented himself as this visionary healer, and he claimed to possess the elusive cure to cancer. Now, this was back in 1925. So, hint, hint, clearly he actually didn't have a cure <laughs> Sorry. Feel so Sorry to break it to you guys. Uh, clearly, clearly he was full of shit. <laughs> and he rechristened the Crescent as the castle in the air, broadcasting his controversial claims over the radio, asserting that he could heal cancer without resorting to surgical procedures. Just an absolute quack. Of course, none of Baker's treatments and medical theories held any credibility in the legitimate medical world, but yet his methods and his outrageous claims caught the attention of the American Medical Association. Now, when Baker's unethical practices on how he acquired his patients came to light, that was when his downfall began. It wasn't when he was doing these crazy fucking treatments on these people thinking that <laughs> it was helping. It was, it was how he acquired his patients was what led to his downfall. So in 1940, he was arrested and imprisoned for mail fraud, putting an end to his reign.
1: I mean, listen, it's nice to see someone do something wrong, get caught doing something wrong, and then suffering consequences. That's the most refreshing part of the story.
0: Yeah, eventually. So while Baker was there he did make some interesting modifications to the hotel. The interior Mm -hmm. underwent a lavender theme remodeling. It kind of added like this really distinctive touch to the premise. And notably Baker ensured his own security with an escape route from his office suite on the first floor, concealing a hidden staircase. So if that wasn't a big fucking red flag, I don't know. what. (laughs) Besides saying that you could cure cancer by like doing whatever he thought he could do Yeah. in 1946 four individuals it was herbert byfield john constantine dwight nichols and herbert Chedder they assumed ownership and they mm-hmm. set out to restore this hotel to its former glory and one of the key strategies that they tried to employ was to establish a travel vacation package in collaboration with the Frisco Railroad. So these vacation packages provided travelers Mm. with an all-inclusive experience. So it combined the hotel's luxurious accommodations with the scenic train journeys, and it just created an unforgettable getaway for visitors. And it just made it a lot easier for, literally, it made it so that People could book it and everything was settled for them. All they had to do was sit their little fanny on the train, get to the hotel and just enjoy the vacation itself. But then in 1967, a devastating fire happened. Of course it did. Um, And it attributed to faulty wiring and it ravaged the penthouse level and a significant portion of the fourth floor of the Crescent Hotel. And the disruptive incident prompted necessary renovations and repairs, of course. And by 1970, the hotel had transitioned into the hands of a company called Resort Enterprises, Inc., with Dwight Nichols becoming the sole remaining owner at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1972, Crescent Heights Development, Inc., was led by a group of investors and these new investors came in and they had a goal to revive the Crescent to its former glory while simultaneously introducing the modern amenities. So people are like, everyone's trying to like one up the previous Mm -hmm. order. Like, yeah, you thought you got it. No, I got you covered. I'm going to one up you with this and this, and they Mm -hmm. just keep leveling up. And I love the fact that so many people had, such high hopes for this hotel. Like no one gave up on this place. It's not a deserted, clearly it's a wedding venue now and people still go to it and enjoy it. So I love that no one ever gave up on the spot. There was always someone occupying this space, always trying to make it bigger, make it better. So in a phased approach, they meticulously restored the property, they expanded the facilities. And it was during this period that the first reports of supernatural occurrences started to surface. And over the past 25 years of the Crescent's glow up, the Crescent has gained a reputation as America's most haunted hotel, thanks to 17 national and international paranormal television shows that have been featured in this historic hotel. But its fame reached to new heights in 2019 when an archeological excavation uncovered hundreds of bottles From our boy Norman Baker's "quote unquote" secret formula and jars containing surgical "quote unquote" medical specimens removed from his patients.
1: What?
0: Yes. So what the fuck was in the jars? Tonsils? Finger? I guess guess whatever he was trying to remove the cancer and maybe it's these tumors or whatever from his patients. I have a feeling this was not done in the most hygienic of ways. Mm -mm. But long story short, this excavation uncovered hundreds of these type of bottles. Mm -hmm. And this eerie collection added to the hotel's macabre ambiance. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I should probably add, of course, when you have a place like Baker's Cancer Research, it of course includes a morgue which has an autopsy table, a stab or walk-in cooler, and it's still there. So these ghostly aspects are definitely showcased during what the hotel does, um, a nightly hotel ghost tour, which they have included when you go to the hotel, which I think is pretty cool. That's awesome. Now let's start talking about some of the actual paranormal experiences that are connected to Baker's time at the hotel, because I'm going to break this down based off of the different eras that this property has been through. So supposedly, there's a lingering spirit of a nurse dressed in all white, of course, and is often seen pushing a gurney on the third floor. And only spotted after 11 p.m., which was when they used to move the deceased out of the cancer hospital, this ghostly spirit vanishes when she reaches the end of the hallway. And others who have not seen the operation have reported sounds of squeaks and rattles that kind of sound like a gurney rolling down the hallway. Kind of... Mm -hmm checks out with the whole idea of the cancer hospital. It's very Scooby-Doo. Yes. Yes. Very Scooby-Doo era. And during the 1930s, this area was used, like I said, as the morgue. And even today still houses Dr. Baker's old autopsy table, like the OG. And like I said, the walk-in freezer. So, of course, this is people's final resting place. God only knows the craziness, the torture they went through before they passed away, there's going to be tormented souls in that location. There can't not be. You know what I mean? Hell no. So the laundry area is also located on the third floor, where a hotel maintenance man once witnessed all of the washers and dryers inexplicably turn on by themselves in the middle of the night. Hmm. Now, of course, there have been reports of the greedy Dr. Baker apparition, being seen in the old recreation room in the basement and at the foot of the first floor stairway. Dressed in a purple shirt and white linen suit, looking somewhat confused, the apparition appears identical to old photographs of him. And another revenant of these old hospital days is a ghostly figure who calls herself Theodora. Now, most often... Most often, she's seen by housekeepers in room 419, and Theodora courteously introduces herself as a cancer patient before quickly vanishing. And in the lobby, a gentleman dressed in formal Victorian clothing, complete with a top hat, has often been spotted at the bottom of the stairway and sitting at the bar. And described as distinguished looking with a mustache and beard, many have claimed to entice him into a conversation. However, he sits quietly and never responds before just suddenly disappearing. Other Victorian dressed apparitions have been often encountered. Many have seen groups of 1890s dancers in full dress attire whirling around the room in the wee hours of the morning. And other reports tell of a 19th century gentleman who's been seen sitting at a table near the windows. And when approached, he says, I saw the most beautiful woman here last night and I'm waiting for her to return. So it's yeah. given. It's giving residual, but at the same time, intelligent haunting. So it seems like it's a Mm -hmm. mix of everything, right? Mm Mm-hmm. On another report, there's a spirit of a young female who once attended the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Women, which was open, like I said, between 1908 and 1924. And according to the tale, the young girl either jumped from or was pushed from the balcony to her death. And today, guests report hearing her scream as she falls. So it seems like... It's a residual haunting. She's constantly going through her death mm-hmm. in a never-ending cycle. That's heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. And other apparitions have been cited in room 202 and 424, as well as other ghostly waiters carrying a tray of butter in the hallways. <laughs> That's the, I'm so sorry.
1: I feel bad for that. That's the most random thing. These poor waiters definitely, like, died, like, had death by butter or something. Or, like... <laughs> They they were dropping off butter and saw something they shouldn't have seen. Or slipped on butter
0: and like broke their neck.
1: Oh, something happened that's tragic. And we're like, ha ha, you died serving butter to people.
0: I have one more experience at this Crescent Hotel. And that is the most often cited apparition. And he is a red haired Irish stonemason who the staff has dubbed Michael. Michael was one of the original masons who worked at the hotel's building in 1885. However, while working on the roof, he lost his balance, fell to the second floor, and was killed. Now, this area now houses room room 218 of the hotel and is said to be the most haunted guest room. Michael is known to be a very mischievous spirit who likes to play tricks with the lights, the doors, the television, and he's often heard pounding loudly on the walls. Others have witnessed hands coming out of the bathroom mirror and heard cries of what sounded like a man falling in the ceiling. Yet other guests have been shaken during the night. And on one occasion, a patron ran screaming from the room, professing to have seen blood splattered all over its walls. Fuck this shit, I'm out. I mean, if you are looking to have a spooky, kooky, ooky wedding, I really don't see how you can look anywhere else except at the 1886 Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. I mean, it has a little bit of everything when it comes to hauntings. Has some good spirits, has some not good spirits, some residual, some intelligent. It has a little bit of everything. So you can't go wrong. And if you look at pictures, guys, it is absolutely stunning very opulent looking, just somewhere that they probably would be beautiful wedding photos. And who knows, maybe during your wedding photos, when you get them developed, you get them sent over to you digitally, you'll see a couple of uh, friendly guests.
1: Oh my God, a dream come true. I chose the Egyptian Theater in Idaho, Boise, Idaho. So the Egyptian Theater, it opened in April 19th, 1927, and so go- this is almost now 100 years old, and it went through a lot. So I collected sources from the Egyptiantheater.net. I got this article from uh, Idaho Architecture Project. And this is actually a very informative um, little, little bunch of paragraphs. So it reads, the Egyptian theater is an architectural treasure and a local landmark. Early Boise had various bars, which brought numerous rowdy behaviors. A man named Leo Falk, F-A-L-K. Uh, decided to reverse this bad publicity mainly to profit his department store in downtown Boise by building a picture theater. So I I feel like we kind of love this um, similarity with the last one, which is like, oh, this this place kind of sucks. I'm going to make it so I can make money. Right. Hummel was a famous architect of Boise and was hired to help design the theater. He pushed for a Spanish style theater, but Falk insisted on an Egyptian theme. Falk one, but there are still signs of Spanish interference, such as the red Spanish style tiles on the roof. And it, it's true. It does look kind of like a Spanish revival. But when you look at the details in the interior, it's very clearly there's a reason it's called the Egyptian theater. And I think this is interesting. Just as a history buff, a lot of the reason that a lot of this happened was uh, in the 1920s. At some point, that's when they dug up King Tut's tomb.
0: I was wondering why that was such a mm-hmm. big theme, why they were so gun ho on doing this, but wow. So if you look up the other Egyptian
1: theater, it was one of many, obviously, built around the same time, because that's when they dug that up. The early 1920s was when they dug up King Tut's Tomb, so all over, everywhere, quite honestly. Um, there are, there's an air of kind of Egyptian hieroglyphics. Like if you look at even the art from the time, you can kind of see that influence you see on, and this is something I actually learned in my stage makeup class. Things like the, the wide eyeliner that kind of goes down allegedly. Now, I don't know this is for sure, but apparently the very, very dark kind of coal eye, not only was it beneficial for s- screen to capture emotions and everything, but it was kind of influenced then Offset to be worn in, you know, actors' headshots and on the red carpet as being influenced by Egyptian culture. And then in the early 1940s, Paramount Theater Chain purchased Fox, and this accounted for the second name change. Since a rival theater change did not want their competition on the marquee, a contest was then held for a new three-letter name. The winner was Ada. Ada which happened to be the name of the governor's wife. And then in the 60s, it says, and I quote, a delirious interior decorator wanted to, quote-unquote, whitewash all the paintings and clean up and modernize the look of the theater. But luckily, the manager threatened her with touching the proscenium arch. Um, he said he actually used a shotgun to protect the arch. There was pressure to tear down and redesign. And then according to Ron Thurber, um, The owner actually had plans to auction off the organ for the theater instead of just selling the – in advance of selling the property. So he and five of his high school friends, including Charles Hummel, the architect, right, formed a committee to buy the organ and attempt to save the theater. After buying the organ, the committee decided that they would go out in style and show one last movie – the 1927 Academy Award winning Wings about a World War I ace. Thurber recalls that he joked with a friend that they should hang an airplane outside of the theater to promote the film. The friend promptly made arrangements to hang a vintage uh, sop with camel from a crane above the intersection outside of the theater. So, of course, this led to a lot of publicity, and due to it, The theater was packed for the showing and a movement grew to save the Egyptian. Then a very important man came into the theater's history. His name was Earl Hardy. The preservation committee convinced him that he needed a theater and talked him into buying the Egyptian from the urban renewal community. Since Earl fell in love with the theater after the buy and being a preservationist himself, the future of the the Egyptian was finally sold and fear of destruction was gone. Because Earl Hardy was struck ill in the 1990s, Anita Kay and her equally fighting husband, Gregory Caslow, decided to fulfill Earl Hardy's dream, and then they restored it to what we know today. So this place, again, 100 years, almost 100 years old, it's been through a good amount of shit, a good amount of owners, right? It's been through it. So as for things like experiences and the tales behind it, There is a ghost said to linger the theater, and it is believed to be a man named Joe, who was a projectionist, and he worked there from the 1920s up until he passed away suddenly from a heart attack. There are accounts of him walking up the stairs to the projection booth um, in the 50s where the incident occurred, so he's in his 50s garb, doing his job, whatever, Um, His ghost is rumored to turn the lights on and off, make strange sounds, open and close doors, kind of just like what I view personally to be residual haunting. He's just going about his work day. It's the 50s. He hasn't had his heart attack yet. Right. He's just going about his job. Yeah. The theater has actually been featured on many episodes of different ghost hunting TV shows. So it was a little difficult to get kind of the online like we like to get you know, the written experiences. But you can find many episodes of in-person ghost hunting. And then, like, we can't show them because, you know, copyright. But I was able to find on... This is a local radio station, 103.5 KISS FM, Boise. a Haunted Idaho, Ghost Inside the Egyptian Theater. This is an article by Tasha Box. So we have a couple of stories and accounts here so we have first one the haunting of two ghosts so for 35 years a man named joe worked as a protectionist at the top of the stairs one night he was walking up the stairs to the projection room when he had a heart attack joe died from the heart attack inside the Egyptian theater of course since that day employees have said not only has he turned lights on and off but I mean, they smell odd aromas. They've heard laughter from a man who isn't there when they go to find the source of the laughter. Hmm. They've also felt the touch of something that isn't seen. So this man is a very, very active ghost, but he's been described as someone who likes to mess with people, especially scaring those who appear pompous. We
0: love activity, this
1: guy. We love right? What a little stinker. Uh, most of Joe's activity will be in the projection booth or the last row of seats in the upper balcony um if he is motivated by the living he will come down to the stage area so um the author states that this is where she wonders if he wasn't a fan of music being performed on stage while she was there with the full theater of brothers osborne fans there's a woman also who seems to be kindly haunting the theater people think she was part of the managerial staff From the early days as well. She's dressed in late 1920s attire and walks around areas of the theater very happy. She may be the one who is touching you and not Joe. And she also may be the cause of odors in the theater. Hmm. So, of course, after reading this, it's like I, I immediately get the vibe. Joe is a little stinker, but at the end of the day, he's a man at work. The smell might be a perfume of this woman. Oh. So on Sunday, November 27th of 2016, the Brothers Osborne came to Boise and put on an incredible show. The crowd was nuts. The music was loud, really loud. The crowd was standing up, singing along with the song, and all of a sudden, a large piece of the ceiling came crashing down, narrowly missing the band, and shattered on the stage into pieces— They played through, but it happened again as if sending a message for a second time. And then there's a link to a whole story. Um, The truth is acoustics. Like, I want to be real. Is it spooky kooky ooky? Absolutely. It is a little sus because there's no other accounts of this happening during any other concerts. But maybe, you know, I don't know, Brothers Osborne, do you? Maybe they went a little too hard. There is a picture, though, in this article. Of a piece of the ceiling, which is fucking, it's crazy to look at. Not only because, like, was this kind of dropped on them, but you get to kind of see, like, the actual piece of the ceiling and the paint. And you just kind of think, like, this whole ass building has been here for 100 years. It trips me out. I'm tired. So I'm really, like, I'm a little shaken up by looking at it.
0: My last wedding venue is the Foley House Inn in Savannah, Georgia. Now, the Foley House Inn was built in the beautiful southern city of Savannah, Georgia, in 1896. And it was constructed at the orders of a widow named Honoria Foley, and she created this home to serve as a bed and breakfast for the community. And this was actually the first abyss of its kind in the city of Savannah, so it was pretty cool. Honoria was the widow of a wealthy Irish immigrant named Owen Foley and their original home was one of the first boarding houses in all of Savannah this this property was the first of many things in Savannah clearly and like many of the homes <laughs> and like many of the homes and buildings in the city the site is believed to sit atop graves from Savannah's earliest settlers and in 1899 a great fire of course a great fire burned the town and the Foley house that was actually built on top of the ashes of a home that had burned down before it. So a lot of fires, a lot of tragedy, a lot of. Hashtag ha- can't stop, won't stop. And by all accounts, Mrs. Foley was very successful and took great pride in her bread and be- breakfast. And she was considered a wise businesswoman and made great financial decisions for herself after her husband's passing. And her son-in-law and his five children lived there with her after her daughter Catherine's death. And they ended up living a very comfortable life thanks to her. And her family was always forever grateful for the life that she gave them even after their father's passing. So with all that being said, let's talk about why people think this is one of the most haunted places to stay in Savannah, which is the murder. (gasps) All was well and good at the Foley House Inn until a guest truly overstayed his welcome and overstepped his boundaries. And he began to make unwelcome advances towards Mrs. Foley, which persisted for days. And mind you, this woman is a boss bitch. She's not going to mess around with a <laughs> man just trying to like get at her. Like she's like, I'm my own money. I don't fucking need you. So one night while she was sleeping in her bed, the man snuck into her bedroom. Hell no. As she should, On Honoria grabbed the nearest object to defend herself, which was a candlestick. Uh She swung at the dark, shadowy figure, fearing for her life. She had a clue. She hit him a couple times and eventually fell onto the floor and was dead. So Uh Honoria realized the problem that she now faced. And in in those days, a claim of self-defense may have not been enough to excuse the murder. And if authorities were notified, she could lose the inn and her freedom. So Plus, a dead man in her bedroom just wasn't good for business, so she did the only thing she could think of at that point. Hide the truth. So, with the help of a friend who was a carpenter by trade, they placed the man's body inside of the wall where he remained for nearly a century. Yes, a century. Honoria confessed to the murder on her deathbed in 1914, but the story was so wild that some folks just couldn't believe it. could this have really happened? Like, this innocent woman, could she have really killed someone and stuffed this man's body in the walls of her bed and breakfast? Now, while the inn was undergoing renovations in the late 18, in the ni- late eight, 1980s, the crew discovered the truth, the skeleton hidden in the wall of the Foley House Inn. Now, no positive identifications were made since the body was so far decomposed, almost mummified, but the story of Mrs. Foley's murder has become infamous in Savannah. Now, the discovery of the skeleton in the wall set off a string of unexplainable ghost phenomena in the inn. Guests began to have encounters with unknown entities. One story told by a woman named Jerry that has since become one of the most famous reports goes like this. So, Jerry was staying at the Foley House Inn in 2008 during a business trip, and she was unaware of the inn's past and was perfectly happy with her room and stay until one night, when she returned late from a meeting and she was walking up to the front steps when she felt a shove. She had just been pushed out of the way by a man rushing past her and she thought to herself, how fucking rude, right? And <laughs> like, Go A yourself. woman after my own heart. She said, fuck that man. Yeah, so her anger quickly turned into confusion and fear when the man turned around to look at her. Now his face, as she described, was extremely pale. His mouth Turned into an angry scowl, his features dark and his eyes sunken. Pretty much, he looked dead. And he stood for a moment at the door while Jerry was frozen, shocked at what she was seeing. And to make matters worse, he then vanished through the door, all while Jerry held her breath, absolutely stunned at what she just witnessed. And when she recovered her wits enough to enter the inn, she found the front room abandoned. She did, however, hear heavy footsteps going up the staircase until the sound disappeared into a random spot in the wall. As she recounted the story to the front desk clerk the next day, she was informed that the spot where the footsteps had disappeared wasn't in fact random at all. You guessed it. The spot where the footsteps led was the exact spot where the crew had pulled the skeleton out 21 years prior. Yeah. So... Could this have been the spirit of Foley's victim trying to show his guest where his final resting place was? Perhaps. I mean, maybe he's just restless. Absolutely. Unable to move on due to his untimely death. Could he be still angry about his rejection and that could have kept him there? Mm -hmm. I see that too. Other visitors see a man in a top hat wandering the gardens. Reports of cold spots are also made all over the property. And the spirit in the garden is seen so much that the staff actually named him Wally. So today, their bed and breakfast is still welcoming guests to Savannah. And there have been several weddings there as well. And from the looks of it, they only hold smaller weddings or more like elopements. But with the amenities, the beautiful design, the location, and the fact that it's pet-friendly, why wouldn't you consider getting married there? So that is the history of the Foley House Inn in Savannah, Georgia. I do want to end this episode
1: by saying, could you fucking imagine if you're getting married in a haunted place? And like, maybe you know the lore. I mean, everywhere in Savannah is fucking haunted. Yeah. Right? Like, it's, hello. Um, but imagine you're at the part where they the officiant says like, Speak now or forever hold your peace. And there's that moment of silence. And that little bitch ghost starts just going.
0: (laughs) Divorce babe. Divorce. (laughs) It's just not meant to be. Oh God. Like that's my. Like like, the
1: bride is. The bride and groom are terrified that one of their family members is going to say something. Imagine the amplification when you realize it's just a ghost screaming because it got too
0: quiet. I'm sorry. If something from the other side is telling me not to do something, I might want to listen to that because it might know something I don't know. I mean, can't relate. I have a roadmap
1: of what not to do. And I'm just like, ah, but what if we took a detour? You know, yes. what if I did two things I'm not supposed to do? Would it cancel out? I think I speak for every boothang in the world when I say I am so excited To see you marry your best friend and get to start your futures together and I think I speak for all of your friends and especially your bridesmaids when I say I can't wait to be there on your special day oh love you Lil I'm so excited it's gonna be such Uh, a fun time it is going to be amazing and
0: this is just my parents are getting married I just wanted to Thank the boo Things for continuing to follow up with us, and mm-hmm. we want to let you know we love and appreciate all of you guys for sticking with us through this very long hiatus. Oh. And we can't wait to get back into the swing of things, and this was, I felt, the perfect way to start us back up.
1: It was classic Lily and Rebecca style and picking up where we left off and starting new.
0: I'm yes. so excited! If you guys don't already, make sure to check us out on Instagram. Follow us at the Schooly Things Podcast, and we will be updating you guys on future episodes, spooky kooky, kooky memes, and just getting ourselves ready for the spooky season. Halloween is right around the corner, and we have got to show up and show out for our favorite holiday. So, guys, stay spooky kooky! kooky. You guys are the best, and we will talk to you boo very soon. Goodbye! Alex Knight, the world's foremost authority on Bigfoot research, heads to Canada to investigate a profoundly incredible Bigfoot encounter. His daughter, Sydney, eagerly joins the expedition. Accompanied by reluctant Toronto television hostess, Amira Ali, Sid and her father's team adventure north in pursuit of the legendary Sasquatch. Prophecy from a forgotten Algonquin tribe and a mystical calling deeply connects Sydney to the creature. The revelation of unknown truths ensures that Sydney will never see the forest or herself the same again. Get your copy of James Allen Ross's Spirit of the Woods, the story of a young woman's encounter with Bigfoot, now for the price of $9.99, paperback, and $0.99 on Kindle. Available on Amazon now.